This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. Edward F. Kelly, who is currently a research professor in the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. He received his Ph.D. in Psycholinguistics and Cognitive Science from Harvard in 1971 and spent the next 15-plus years working mainly in experimental parapsychology. Uh, he is associated with the uh, Cedar Creek Institute. Uh, his books, The Irreducible Mind and Beyond Physicalism, uh, both under the auspices of Esalen. Uh, thank you so very much, Dr. Kelly, for taking the time to come on our show today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Ed, if we may call you Ed. Um, Please. <laughs> um, you've had an interesting career of more than 40 years now since you got your Ph.D. Uh, in at Harvard in uh cognitive science and psycholinguistics, um, and it, it sounds as though you went right into the study of what we call parapsychology or the paranormal. Uh, what drew you to that, and um, what was sort of the antecedents of it, and where did you end up? Uh, okay, well, um, late in my graduate school career, I had a, a call one day from my mother, who uh, informed me that my uh, uh, female relatives uh, had turned into a medium. And she clearly was concerned about this and figured I must know about it and could probably reassure her that this person was okay. So, uh, of course, I had no, no idea what she was talking about. I had to go to the library to find out. And when I did, I discovered that William James, who was already one of my main intellectual heroes, had spent a large part of his adult life studying such things, unbeknownst to me and probably uh, most of the rest of the denizens of William James Hall, where I was working <laughs> at the time. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I started spending time in the library looking into this stuff and quickly realized that, uh, gee, well, first of all, there's nothing inherently terrible about being a medium, so I could reassure my mother. But more than that, there was this big literature here in the library uh, describing even experimental research that seemed to demonstrate that things were happening that, according to widely held views, probably couldn't happen. And that seemed important to me. So uh, when it came time to make a decision about what to do, I just threw in with J.B. Ryan down in Durham. Uh, anyway, I started working there in the first week of 1972, and I was lucky enough within about the first month to meet a guy who's undoubtedly one of the best um, psychic subjects ever to uh, set foot in a parapsychology laboratory. This guy uh, was a first-year law student at Yale at the time, and he could do basically anything we asked him to do. And he did all sorts of things that were far beyond uh, the possibility of explanation in terms of just chance and all that. So any residual doubts I had about the reality of psychic phenomena were erased by that experience. Ed, could I ask you what were some of the things that he did that were most convincing to you? Well, uh, at the time we had a, a sort of electronic psi testing machine. It had been uh, built by uh, Helmut Schmidt, who was, had been an engineer, physicist and engineer at uh, Boeing, 
uh, had by this time become the research director of Ryan's Institute for Parapsychology. Anyway, this thing consists, of, it's a box, uh, maybe a foot by eight inches or something like that, and it has four colored lights and correspondingly colored buttons. And the person's task is to push a button corresponding to the target that will be picked by the machine. Inside the machine, there's a very complicated apparatus to do that, which incorporates a uh, um, radioactive decay. So it's uh, inherently very good testing device. Never did anything in the absence of a subject. And uh, Helmut uh, had only discovered a couple of people who could score a couple of percent above or below chance that is 25% after literally spending years looking for them. Anyway, this guy came in, uh, sat in the library one day, told us about his life experience, and uh, Helmut had put the machine there, so every so often he'd reach out and push a button. And by the end of the hour, he had uh, 180 hits in 508 trials, which is something over 35%. And when you do the math on that, the probability of something like that or better happening by chance is on the order of one in 10 million. So uh, Helmut's eyes had gotten bigger and bigger during the course of this hour, and that was really just the beginning with Bill. He did lots of things like that, sometimes even better. Hmm. So he was the real deal. And and back then, if my memory uh, recalls, uh, Professor Ryan was pretty much the only game in town for this kind of work. And I'm sure he and people like you who are associated with it came under a lot of uh, ridicule and um, uh, cynicism from your colleagues and the, and the public. Uh, how much has that changed in these years? How, what is the reception to your work now, and how has the, the rigor of the research itself grown? Well, it's kind of a long and complicated story, and it's not actually uh, very easy to answer even now. Hmm. Um, let me say first that uh, JB was both a very good and a not-so-good thing for psychical research. Psychical research is the, uh, the larger-scale term. You know, the Society for Psychical Research was founded in the U.K. in 1882, and they had a very big vision of what it was all about. They were interested in things like survival, post-mortem survival, uh, and various other topics related to the kind of huge questions of life. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, uh, shortly after the death of William James, behaviorism kind of took over in American psychology. Uh, and uh, words like consciousness weren't spoken in polite company for many decades. Right. Uh, J.B. came along at the height of that behaviorist movement, and he basically contracted psychical research into a very narrow experimental discipline based on card guessing and dice throwing. Mm. Not that experiments hadn't been done before, but that was all that J.B. was interested in doing, basically. Uh, they were very good uh, at systematically defending themselves against the kind of... Uh, scurrilous attacks that they experienced early on. And in fact, there's a, a book published in 1940, uh, ESP After 60 Years, that goes through a lot of that history and uh, really demonstrates how, how effectively they were able to defend themselves. You know, parapsychology and statistics were growing up sort of at the same time. And so some statisticians got into the game on the side of JB to uh, 
correct these errors that were be, being made by mainly psychological critics about statistical matters. Anyway, uh, there have also been some very unfortunate incidents in the field. Uh, one of JB's own protégés got caught cheating. Luckily, he was caught by our guys and not by outsiders. Hmm. A man named Sol in England was apparently caught. It's not quite so clear in his case whether he was or wasn't cheating. Uh, and, of course, uh, critics seize upon these things to try and discredit the whole uh, enterprise, which is ludicrous, really. So how are things now? Well, we still got a bunch of irresponsible critics running around uh, claiming that there are all kinds of problems that are mostly non-existent. A uh, good uh, source of information, by the way, about the, there are a bunch of them, but a good one, one I particularly like, is a book by Dean Radin called Entangled Minds, in which he summarizes not only a bunch of the main lines of contemporary Psi uh, research, which are more adventurous in many ways than J.B. Ryan's original studies, but he also goes into some detail about the uh, uh, bad behavior of critics, how shabby much of the criticism is, and also begins to talk about how new developments in physics are making Psi uh, uh, look less strange than they did in the uh, context of classical physics. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a huge new development. In fact, this is one of the main things I hope to talk about uh, during this interview. Um, you know, in reading your wonderful book, Phil, the, uh, the part of it that I thought needed most uh, attention is the, the chapter on sciences, chapter 16, I think. Uh, because a lot of things are going on that uh, greatly strengthen what you present in that chapter. Mm-hmm. And there are two kinds of things in particular. Uh, first of all, and I'm not going to talk about this much because I think too many psychologists talk uh, too loosely about quantum mechanics, but yeah. there are a lot of things going on in that world that have radically undermined the classical concept of matter, which, of course, is fundamental to this whole physicalist view that still grips most mainstream scientists, including in particular guys like psychologists like me, and neuroscientists, and also has a grip on a lot of philosophers of mine. You know, the basic idea that's out there uh, dominating the current scene is that uh, reality consists bot- at bottom of just little bits of stuff flying around in fields of force and all that, and everything else has to come from that. Uh, in particular, everything in mind and consciousness has to come from that. Consciousness itself has to be manufactured by brain processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have a lot of reasons now to believe that that cannot be the the true story. Uh, Some of it comes from physics, which has undermined the basic idea of matter and classical concepts of reality. But a lot of it is coming from uh, our side. Uh, Not only this parapsychological stuff, but a whole lot of related things, uh, many of which we summarized in uh, a book called Irreducible Mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are lots of things like extreme psychophysiological influence, many aspects of memory, uh, things like near-death experiences, especially ones that occur under extreme physiological conditions, for example, deep general anesthesia and or cardiac arrest. These are conditions in which most neuroscientists would say that you can't have any experience, let alone the most powerful experience he ever had. And yet, 
that's happening. Right. And then things like uh, genius and uh, mystical experience also need to be taken mm-hmm. much more seriously than they have been by modern psychology. Right. Hey, hey, and then, of course, there's... Yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, there's also been a, a big uh, kind of philosophical awakening, particularly in the last, oh, let's say, 20 years, starting with uh, David Chalmers' book about consciousness. More and more philosophers and scientists, I think, are becoming less and less convinced that consciousness can ever be explained as a product of brain processes. Mm-hmm. I mean, even a guy like uh, Christoph Koch, who's a, you know sort of the uh, um, protege protege of Francis Crick has stated categorically in his recent autobiography that he's given up on that idea. That's kind of an earthquake in neuroscience. And I wanted to ask yeah. you a question before we go forward, and, and that is, uh, they, back when you started out around 1971, and I don't remember the exact year, there was a gentleman, Yuri Geller, and he, he convinced a lot of the public that this research on parapsychology was worthwhile because he he, people felt, was defying laws of modern physics, or at least classical physics. And then he was very much debunked. Uh, how, do, you, do you remember that period of time, and did that set your research back? And have there been individuals that have come forward since then? Uh, you mentioned one, but that have consistently been able to do, uh, 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 involved in your research, that consistently go against what we look at as uh, particular laws of nature or physics. Mm-hmm. Well, Geller is a complicated case, and uh, not the only one in the history of psychical research. Uh, I personally believe that he really could do things, uh, but there's no doubt that he would cheat on occasion. He was caught cheating on occasions. In fact, uh, even um, my physics colleague, Henry Stapp, uh, had his son at a party at his own house, was able to take a, uh, a movie of Uri Geller surreptitiously bending a spoon behind his back and then presenting it to people in front of him as something that had just spontaneously happened. So there's no doubt that he could cheat, but he also did things that I think were real. Now, Starting, why would you way, convince was, those things were real? Well, uh, for example, uh, he did some uh, ESP work at mm-hmm. uh, SRI uh, that was reported in respectable places. And I personally witnessed the amazingly Randy uh, describing that in a, in a way that he had to know was inaccurate. He described a way in which Uri Geller could have cheated that was not possible the way the experiment mm-hmm. was actually done. So that's the kind of stuff that we're constantly up against. Mm-hmm. Now, have there been other people in the history of the subject who could consistently do stuff? Absolutely, starting with some very terrific uh, trance mediums back in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, including in particular Mrs. Piper, who was discovered by William James's family. Uh, and there have been uh, lots of consistently good subjects in uh, experimental work, too. Uh, another one that I worked with was a guy named Sean Harabance, who had a long history of uh, way above chance performance in a variety of tasks. And there, well, you know about probably the, the uh, so-called Stargate program, where we had a bunch of remote viewers Mm. working on intelligence tasks. Ed May and his colleagues are the main source of information about all that. But certainly it's it works well enough to be useful for some purposes. Ed, um, now since we're on the subject of um, people with uh, exceptional abilities who can demonstrate it uh, to your satisfaction, 
empirically, um, in the history of uh, spiritual literature and uh, spiritual teachers and masters, there's always been this sort of uh, am, uh, ambivalent attitude toward what we think of as superpowers, or in uh, the Vedic tradition we call cities, where, where they're given credence and explained and uh, used as illustrative uh, of the, the potential of the mind, and at the same time discouraged, uh, or that is to say people are discouraged from focusing too much on them and they're a distraction. In your experience with these people, um, is there any correlation between spiritual happiness, um, contentment, love, all the qualities we, we think of as uh, associated with a person of, of deep spirituality, and these abilities? Or is there a reverse correlation? Well, I'm glad you uh, brought this up, and it's, uh, again, a complicated and difficult subject. Uh, I personally would tend to say the reverse. I mm. mean, people who come to us with conspicuous psi-abilities often are struggling with them in various ways and struggling with other aspects of their life. Mm. Uh, but uh, what I really would rather speak to is this kind of, uh, is the ambivalence among persons who are actively cultivating a spiritual life, for example, through uh, meditative disciplines of one mm -hmm. sort or another. Um, I perfectly understand that these things could be distractions uh, if you get involved with them in the wrong way. At the same time, I would like to encourage anybody uh, listening to this um, interview who has an intense spiritual practice and has begun to experience unusual things of this sort to consider that a small investment of time in a research setting could go very far toward providing really conclusive evidence for the reality of these things and contribute to the rapid abandonment of this physicalism that grips the scientific world and I think is having terrible consequences for the rest of our civilization as well. And, Have I made sense? Yeah, and, and I, that, that's a, a very good point. I think there's people out there that certainly would like to be experimented upon so they uh, better understand their own experience. What research projects uh, are you excited about? Let, let's say you had unlimited funding. What would be some of the stuff you'd like to, uh, areas you'd like to go into uh, that maybe you haven't gone into before in your research? Well, uh, as it turns out, uh, you know, here at uh, DOPS, we do a uh, a variety of things. We have active research projects involving near-death experiences, uh, what we call cases of the reincarnation type in which uh, small children begin speaking and acting as though they're actually remembering events from a previous life, which you can then go and mm -hmm. uh, attempt to verify. Mm. Uh, we also have a lab. We've created a uh, state-of-the-art EEG lab here, uh, which we want to use to carry forward a program we actually started 40 years ago in the School of Engineering at Duke. This is after I left Rhine's lab, migrated over to uh, uh, engineering, electrical engineering at Duke, and we got started on the idea of studying physiological correlates of EEG. 
I mean, uh, of uh, ESP and PK, psychokinetic performance. The idea is like, for example, in an ESP test, say we've got this guy, Bill, and he's uh, guessing targets at far higher rates than you expect by chance. Well, we'd like to know, is his brain in some unusual state when he's about to get one right? Uh, if we knew that, number one, it's a good thing to anchor stuff in physiology. Number two, we'd already have a kind of statistical control because we could, in principle, then go into a new performance, pick out trials that have that signature of being likely to be good guesses and expect to find a higher success rate than in the trials overall. We could also maybe learn something about, you know, mechanisms involved in the production of psi and sources. Who's, who's the real subject? You know, the fact that you call one guy the subject and the other guy the experimenter doesn't necessarily make it the truth of the matter. And that gets to be a big problem in parapsychology research, particularly when subjects and experimenters are more or less equipotential, you see. I mean, uh, it's kind of uh, finding a uh, um, uh, suitable container for an infinite solvent, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, so the taking psi as a, as a given in the context of trying to do experiments creates all kinds of headaches for the experimenter. We're gradually learning to work around these things. But mm. anyway, uh, in terms of experiments to do, we're interested in studying uh, not only uh, psi phenomena directly, but also a variety of altered states of consciousness that we know from uh, cross-cultural and uh, historical studies are conducive to unusual sort of uh, outbursts. These include things like, for example, not only deep meditative states, as described, for example, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and various other places, but uh, deep hypnotic states, uh, out-of-body states. Some people uh, claim to be able to leave their bodies at will and proceed to some re remote, agreed-upon location. We'd love to work with persons like that, you know, in the remote location, which in our case is a satellite room upstairs and across the hall, mm -hmm. we can put uh, targets and detectors of various kinds and see if they influence things and bring back correct information and also find out what's going on while this is all happening. Yeah, there's, Ed? There's lots to do, yeah. Um, I'm intrigued by a phrase you used earlier when you were describing um, the sort of prevailing worldview of uh, the West uh, especially uh, in in scientific circles uh, that you call physicalism that some mm -hmm. other people might call materialism yeah. or, or scientism as we had Charlie Tart on and he he talked uh -huh. about scientism mm -hmm. a lot um, and you you said there were terrible consequences to this so mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious what are those terrible consequences and what would you replace this uh, prevailing paradigm with well, ooh, boy, these, these these are big ones. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, I can only kind of sketch how I see things. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, we're we're going to have a meeting, a private meeting, really here at uh, in Charlottesville next month to talk about all these things in depth with a variety of people and perspectives. But uh, you know, there's no doubt that uh, physicalism uh, drives. 
the antagonism of many scientists, mainstream scientists, toward things like psychical research, religion. Uh, it's also penetrated all the humanities. You know, you have lots of people in the humanities who represent themselves as being spokesmen for science, who have distorted those disciplines in a direction that uh, I think is very bad for them. Religious studies, for example, a great case in point. Um, it turns out that, according to friends like Bill Barnard and Jeff Kripal, that I think you know, mm-hmm. uh, something over half of the members of the American Academy of Religion are essentially physicalist, reductionist-type people who spend their careers looking for reductionist explanations of spiritual experiences. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. a disaster. I think we need to take comparative religion much more seriously. I basically think, and this is the central point of our second book, Beyond Physicalism, that the combination of things like uh, psychical research, uh, studies of psi phenomena and also post-mortem survival, uh, mystical experience, which has largely been ignored or pathologized in contemporary Western science, mm-hmm. and things like extreme forms of uh, creativity, genius, on the order of a guy like Ramanujan, the Indian mathematician, point inexorably to the need to chuck physicalism and replace it with something much closer to essentially Vedic ideas. Uh, we argue in Beyond Physicalism that where all this seems to lead is toward something like evolutionary panentheism. Mm. It's essentially a, a form of idealism, which I think is proving to be uh, potentially compatible with modern science in a deep way, and certainly much more uh, congenial to a healthy human civilization if it were uh, widely adopted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what really excited me about your book, Phil, is to uh, realize for the first time just how large this uh, community of sympathetic persons may actually be through Mm -hmm. its exposure to, you know, ideas and practices from those traditions. Mm -hmm. Ed, have you uh, personally ever had an experience uh, that uh, was under the umbrella of a, a parapsychological experience, something out of the ordinary that could not be explained by, by science as we know it, that was, uh, you know, but you were absolutely 100% convinced it was real. Uh, I personally have not, but actually, uh, uh, this may sound strange, but I'm rather grateful for that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the experiences that were convincing to me were my experiences of other people doing things that I knew could not be explained mm-hmm. in the conventional way. Mm-hmm. And from my point of view as an experimenter, it's uh, not only okay, but desirable that I not be regarded as a uh, uh, potential source of effects in the experiments that I carry out. <laughs> ah, interesting. <laughs> that sort of thing, Ed. Um, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but it strikes me that you are uh, sort of uh, a counterforce to a prevailing uh, worldview that carries with it certain criteria for how one knows things and how one proves things. Uh, in seeking to uh, expand that or over- overturn it, in, um, 
is it incumbent upon you to play by the rules of science and and physicalism in order to make your case? And is that an unreasonable burden? Are there other forms of evidence that might not be uh, acceptable to scientists, but uh, uh, you you can't bring into the into the picture? Okay. Um... Scientism really has two meanings. Uh, the original meaning was the uh, sort of ambition to apply scientific method to all questions of interest. Uh, that, I think, is welcome, and I support that. Uh, more recently, scientism has acquired these pejorative kinds of connotations about basically taking what current physicalist science says is the truth as the absolute truth, and an almost religious attitude toward the deliverances of mainstream physicalist scientists. That's not good. Now, science is really more method than doctrine. Uh, and I think one of the really important things that gets lost is that experimentation is not the only route to knowledge. Mm. You know, we don't mm. prove things in science. We pile up evidence of greater or lesser convincingness about hypotheses and so on. Uh, I think there's been a tremendous tendency, starting really with J.B. Ryan, uh, to assume that the, the only way to learn about psi is through experimentation. I, I was trained as an experimenter. I think experiments are great, and I think a lot of experiments in parapsychology have been very good, well done, and have taught us things. But I actually do not believe that experimentation is necessarily the best way to learn about psi. Typically, we have very small effects accumulated over large numbers of trials. The literature of spontaneous experiences is, in many ways, much more interesting to me mm -hmm. as a psychologist. They're much richer. Right. I mean, stuff, stuff has gone on. Well, it's gone on throughout human history. Uh, but... Uh, I mean, very early in the history of the Society for Psycho Research, they produced a wonderful book called Phantasms of the Living, pardon the sort of Victorian title. But it was a collection of spontaneous experiences. Uh, but these were not just uh, anecdotes. Uh, these guys laboriously uh, collected cases in which they could get um, evidence that the experience had been written down or told to someone before the confirming evidence appeared, where they could get affidavits confirming all the, or legal documents confirming all the essential features of the case, like when someone had died, and blah, blah, blah. So uh, this book, which, by the way, you can find on the uh, Esalen website under scholarly resources. There's a bunch of good, good uh, books there, that some of which are very hard to find. Uh, that particular one, published in 1886, contains over 700 cases of this sort, some of which are really kind of hair-raising mm -hmm. if you read through them. I strongly recommend it. Mm -hmm. and Could the you literature say, say of, the name uh, of that book again? Uh, it's called Phantasms of the Living uh, <laughs> by uh, Gurney, Myers, and uh, Podmore. Mm -hmm. Here's a question, Ed, if I may follow up. Uh, along those same lines, um, people could look at uh, the data or the anecdotal work and say, 
Well, okay, I can believe Psy exists and people have these extraordinary powers or the potential for them or some people have them, but it's still all the brain producing these things. Where uh, is it possible and are there, uh, is there research going on about the, that might shed light experimentally on the um, question of whether consciousness arises from brain activity or consciousness uh, exists uh, prior, prior to the physical world and so forth, or outside of it. Well, without being uh, too self-serving, I think I can recommend our book, Irreducible Mind, as the really most uh, comprehensive source of that kind of information. That's really the central subject of the book. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. I just wanted to throw yeah. out there, following up on, on Phil's question, why would it be, maybe it's the, the situation that science, as science it being a methodology, can, cannot prove that, but that does not take away from the reality of it. In other words, science may have its limitations. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, Ed, what do you think about that? I mean, does science have its limitations? And is science, if it can't be proved by science, does that mean it's not real? Because you, t- you touched upon subjective means of gaining knowledge as maybe being superior. Well, I think science certainly does have limitations. Uh, it's not the uh, sort of ultimate decider of what's real or not real. But I also think that science can go a lot further mm-hmm. in the direction of making these extreme consciousness phenomena accessible to scientific method. I think a lot of people are now attempting to move science in that direction. For example, in studies of meditation, we've really got a lot, we've got to get a lot better than we have been in terms of how we deal with the uh, consciousness aspect. We're great at, you know, measuring fMRIs and EEGs and all that, uh, but not so good at uh, listening to what people have to say about their experience and you know, asking them in a open-minded and sympathetic manner about what's going on. Right, that's a very good point. Now, I have one last question, and then I'll turn it over to Phil. Um, if you sp- and I don't know that you can answer this, but if you speak to a group of neurophysiologists and you speak to a group of uh, physicists, which group is more open to uh, your research? Generally. Physicists and engineers, by far. Mm-hmm. Psychologists are the worst. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, no. I mean, it's partly, you know, and understandably, because uh, over the century plus of its existence, psychology has learned about problems in human testimony and how people can deceive themselves and mm-hmm. develop, you know, ways of kind of correcting for this. But I also think uh, psychologists tend greatly to overestimate how sophisticated they are in these respects. And, and, and I mentioned, yeah. what about neurophysiologists? People in life science. Well, they're kind of. I kind of lump them all together at this point because you know, uh, uh, cognitive psychology has evolved into cognitive neuroscience, and the, mm-hmm. the name of the game for most mainstream folks is trying to figure out how particular cognitive operations are implemented in brains. Ah, uh, Ed, we don't have uh, much time left. I um, would love to uh, have the listeners uh, have some resources about where they can find out more. You're associated mm-hmm. with at least two institutes that I know about. One is the Cedar Creek Institute. The other is Esalen. Um, maybe you can give us a, a, a brief uh, 
look at what those what you're doing at these two institutions and mm-hmm. how uh, people can find out more, particularly Esalen. When people hear the name Esalen, they think of hot tubs um, and human <laughs> and you know sort of human potential workshops. But uh, you know just to give credit where it's due, Esalen has been doing serious research in a lot of areas for many, many years, and you've you've been part of that. So tell us a little bit of, uh, briefly about those two places. Okay. Well, Cedar Creek Institute is a uh, kind of uh, affiliated nonprofit research institute, a companion to DOPS. Um, and I think people could probably find it by Googling on that name. Uh, now, Esalen, of course, was started uh, a long time ago, about 50 years now. Mike Murphy, uh, co-founder, has had a guiding vision really since day one, which derives from the Vedic tradition, particularly through its expression in Aurobindo. Right, Sri Aurobindo. Uh, he, he, yeah, he got involved uh, in that through uh, Spiegelberg at Stanford. Mm-hmm. You had that great episode in the book where he mm-hmm. mistakenly wanders into a class by Spiegelberg and mm-hmm. everything changes. Uh, but Mike, you know, has run this um, Center for Theory and Research as a kind of a private think tank within uh, Esalen to pursue a lot of his interests. And Mike is an absolutely extraordinary person with a fantastic diversity and depth of intellectual interests. And he's the one who, in 1998, uh, convened the group that produced uh, the two books, Irreducible Mind and Beyond Physicalism. Uh, Mike had recognized that if physicalism is true, there can't be survival, and yet there are people here and there who are working on survival and seemingly producing some kind of evidence for it. So let's get them together and see where it goes. And, you know, that's how it happened. Very good. Um, Very good. Yeah. And so people can Google Cedar Creek Institute. Is there a... a, a, What's the best resource uh, or uh, website for the Esalen, uh, the part of Esalen you're involved in? Just uh, Google Esalen CTR. And that's E-S-A-L-E-N. And we'll have that all posted up uh, on our website. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, great. We've been talking to Dr. Edward F. Kelly. Thank you so much, Ed. And any final points you want to make? Uh, no, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope uh, I hope this all gets out to lots of people. And okay, and they can look for on, your... Uh, yeah, I hope to have you back on the show again soon, because there's much, much more to talk about. Right, just Google okay. Edward F. Kelly, University of Virginia. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Ed. All right, thank you. Thank you.